I'm Ben Weingarten. I'm Emily Dushinsky. I'm Jeremy Carl. I'm Inez Stepman. And this is NetCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NetCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, as always, we have a diverse array of subjects to cover today. I'm going to kick us off by talking a little bit about the latest state of play in the weaponization of the entirety of the federal government against us. Um, Inez will talk a little bit about the Blaze Media Summit, which made substantial news with Tucker Carlson uh, essentially eviscerating certain candidates on the stump. Then Jeremy is going to talk a little bit about a faux study on the best and worst states in the United States. And last but not least, Emily will take us home by talking about the Jason Aldean song controversy. So with that, I will turn it over to myself. And uh, as we're talking today, there's a hearing ongoing, which is covering these incredible and, and I would argue inspiring based upon their depositions and their testimony today, IRS whistleblowers who have exposed essentially the agency-wide protection of the Biden family via Hunter Biden, as well as efforts of the DOJ specifically to allegedly obstruct the investigation of Hunter Biden, block any leads that might have gone to Joe Biden, and meddle in what these IRS whistleblowers argue are unprecedented ways. And then the split screen to that is that we got news this week, which we've long anticipated, that President Trump had received some kind of target letter from special counsel Jack Smith indicating that uh, he was going to face a grand jury. He was a target of the investigation. And it's been leaked that there are kind of three statutes that were the focus in this target letter. One of them concerning deprivation of rights, which is sort of has been linked. It's been speculated linked to you know, the Capitol riot itself. A conspiracy to defraud the United States, which states which deals with the so-called fake elector scheme, and then uh, allegedly witness tampering, as well. And at a very high level, and there are any number of points that we can make about this sort of contrast here. But one of the things that's very striking and that I keep going back to in my own thinking and writing is that conservatives write tersely, terse letters, um, and you know express a lot of outrage at the weaponization of these authorities and they do probes and hearings. And what the left does is they try to actually throw conservatives in jail. And that is the state of play. And nothing has happened thus far to change that paradigm. Now, we have seen you know, threats of uh, contempt of Congress leveled, for example, at Christopher Wray. Uh, it's now the second time that's occurring with action being taken by the House Judiciary Committee. We've seen threats to pull funding for a new FBI headquarters and potentially force FBI headquarters to Alabama, which I think is certainly more than justifiable. But these represent, to some extent, the kind of low-hanging fruit. And impeaching officials, frankly, is sort of low-hanging fruit, although it hasn't been done by the Republican House, in spite of the fact that the Democrats uh, would impeach on basically any grounds when it came to President Trump, for example. And so this leads to you know, kind of a, a couple major themes that I'm sure we're going to be addressing for more than the next year, one of which is, you know, the deep state essentially is meddling in our elections now openly uh, in way in, and brazenly, quite frankly, uh, the charges themselves 
are really secondary to the fact that, as we've discussed at length myriad times, you know, we have a show me the man, I'll show you the crime justice system. One of the things I would emphasize is that there are many Republicans and probably many conservatives who want to just get get past January 6th, so-called. That ain't happening based upon what is going to happen in terms of these indictments. And so they have to be fought. The allegations and the fights against not just Trump and then everyone in his orbit and then all of these so-called fake electors, which is totally disingenuous because there have always been alternative electors and Democrats themselves have, have talked about and planned and plotted to have analogous electors as well. It's going to go way beyond Donald Trump, those in his orbit, orbit so-called fake electors, and one to 2,000 January 6ers who are going to be prosecuted. If this is not headed off now, and if the weaponized agencies are not brought to heel and radically changed, then ultimately it's going to be open season on everyone. And we've been talking about this at length, but I think you're seeing the ratcheting up and the escalation now. So you know, I put this out there. There may be some revelations that come out of this hearing today, this IRS whistleblower testimony hearing. I think they've pretty much reiterated what they disclosed in their depositions from what I've gleaned thus far. And Democrats have shown, by the way, they don't really want to address button family influence peddling and the, any of the myriad associated crimes with it. Based upon their questioning, they want to make this about Trump. So I think that's a win from the perspective of on the merits, it's very clear the influence peddling scheme is a very real issue that they don't want to touch. And they also don't want to touch the fact that Merrick Garland may well have perjured himself or U.S. Attorney Weiss may have lied. We don't know yet. That's all kind of secondary to the regime protects its own and it's trying to destroy us. And if it's not headed off right now at the pass, we are going down a very dark road. Um, so with that, I open it up to the group for any of these grab bag of issues that you might want to touch on. And I've read well, I'll go first silent. then. Um, you know, I, I think one of the things that's interesting to me is is kind of which of the two uh, kind of paths you go down. I think the sort of the way the conservative movement has traditionally worked is to say um, we need to stop uh, them from throwing uh, us in jail, and and you know we just need to get them back to scolding us. Whereas I think the the new right is sort of like no, we need to be throwing them in jail, and I think. Uh, you know, I, I do think we need to fight fire with fire here. I agree with you that right now we're sort of really only unfortunately in a low hanging fruit um, mode. And I think, you know, kind of the the end game here where I think a lot of folks on our side think, oh, well, they're not going to arrest Trump uh, or they're not, not going to arrest him. They're not going to put him in prison is just dangerously naive about where we are in uh, 2023 in this country. Yeah, um, I mean, this is one of the the few encouraging things uh, that I've heard about this kind of uh, election cycle, this campaign cycle. Is, uh, a couple of weeks ago, there was a, some leaks, quote unquote, from the Trump campaign, um, and some very worried articles, I think at WAPO and, and um, elsewhere, talking about Schedule F reforms, talking about civil service reform and how seriously the Trump administration, if they get another shot at the White House, is going to take uh, essentially the rules around these federal agencies and the people who work for them, right? So um, the reason that I've in the past been less enthused with the throw them in jail uh, counterpoint is, is less actually about norms and more about the fact that in some cases, yes, there are individuals who step clearly beyond the rule, the line of rule of law and open themselves to prosecution. But so much, especially like, for example, with the, twi with the Twitter files, like so much of this you can see is happening through coordination 
behind the scenes through people who know each other and a general um, aligned worldview. So many, for example, of the decisions that are laid out in um, the Durham report are decisions of prosecutorial judgment that it's very, very difficult to actually like prosecute for us to really prosecute um, on the basis of, of making those judgment calls, even though just like getting overcharged in you know, the grocery store, all the, the quote unquote enthusiasm and mistakes are going one direction because what you actually have is a Borg of people who have very, very similar worldview and are supporting each other in the quote unquote reasonableness of their decision making, right? So um, it's, it's, it's less, I guess, that I, I am worried about throwing some people in jail if they break the law, and I think that Rubicon has long been crossed, given this is the, what the fourth time we're talking about indicting the the leading domestic political opposition. Right. So it, it's less that, although I have noted how dangerous it is that when Biden and Trump now we have two likely front running candidates, either of whom is potentially going to be prosecuted and put in jail if they lose um, and how dangerous that is for a republic. But I think those are kind of concerns under the bridge at this point. It's it's what can actually be done. And so that that's that's why I, I think one of the it is more encouraging to see the Trump future Trump administration maybe um, talking more seriously about how to control the personnel in the overgrown fourth branch of government that is now completely weaponized in favor of one side of the political spectrum. So I just I just think it's more of a competency question to me how to do this in a way that actually cleans house and changes the structure of that branch that fourth unconstitutional branch of government that is now weighing in so aggressively politically in a way that you know perhaps the wilsonian progressives imagined that they would not right when they were talking about oh like the congress and democracy sets the general direction of the ship of state but we need a, a managerial technocratic bureaucracy in a modern world to effectuate the, the views of the people and ultimately of elected officials. Well, now we see that that's not the case. This is, you know, you give a lot of people, you know, over 2 million civilian um, employees of the federal government of these branches, right? You give them, they have political views of their own. And in fact, they have overwhelmingly one political view or one side, I would call it sort of centrist neoliberalism, but it is hostile, completely hostile to any change of the consensus outside of the consensus of the last 30 years. And they, within the, that like space, they perceive that as a Hitler level threat to liberal democracy as defined by them. And they're, they're willing to actually uh, go outside every important norm, uh, not just of a constitutional Republic, which is again, water under a bridge, uh, but but of any kind of small d democracy, and they've shown that time and time again. So I think the solution has to be aimed at taming a bureaucracy rather than picking off an individual or two at the top, because I just don't think that solution is going to work. There are people right under them who will replace them, and largely they'll have very similar worldviews. Yeah, it's about the incentive system. I think that's fundamentally the key. And uh, in a different time, there are things, you know, for instance, Donald Trump did in his own past. In his case, it's it's less of like the bookkeeping, uh, like which is essentially what the Alvin Bragg allegations against him amount to. And more of the like character questions that are absolutely huge that in a previous era 
would have been uh, the types of things that people were ashamed of. The Hunter Biden thing, for example, is something that would have shamed another man, I'm talking about Joe Biden, as a father out of the public sphere. Um, and so to Inez's point, I think it's always been very clear. The framers knew that it was very clear. You can't have this Republican system of government without norms in line with Republican virtues uh, that, you know, sort of uh, the, that all kinds of people have analyzed in America um, over the years. And you, you just can't, you, you can't have one without the other. And I think what we finally started to see, um, you know, for, for all the flaws of the country, um, people have observed throughout our history, our, our sort of adherence to small R Republican virtues were there. I think what we finally started to see is, is a breakdown. And that's where you end up in banana Republic territory, uh, really, no matter how strong your constitutional system is. And I think ours is the strongest in the world. I think it is the best in the world. I don't think we need damn ranked choice voting. I feel like we're pretty good. Um, we need an incentive system that uh, reels in the power of, as Inez said, the uh, the fourth branch of government, which is on the docket, literally in the Supreme Court, when Chevron deference is up for consideration. We're actually about to find out whether the fourth branch of government is more powerful than the Supreme Court, <laughs> depending on how that decision goes. So uh, it's the Schedule F incentives, all of that is the bigger picture context here that's absolutely essential. So on that note, let's turn it back to Inez, talk about the Boyas presidential summit. Yeah, so I mean, I guess there are two different tracks of how to talk about this this summit. The first track, of course, being the candidates themselves under grilling from Tucker Carlson. I think you saw several candidates effectively blow up uh, their their potential campaigns. Asa Hutchinson, I'm not sure why anybody, why he thought or anyone else thought that he, he had a shot at the nomination. Um, and as well as I think Tim Scott did quite poorly, although I wouldn't say he's, he's out. Um, and then, of course, we have this somewhat unfair uh, viral take from from Mike Pence, where he appears to be completely unconcerned about domestic issues. I mean, if you look at the whole context of that exchange, it's it's clear that that's not actually what he's saying. Um, but nevertheless, I think that's going to be a huge moment for him, and I, I think probably a devastating one. Um, but underlying all of that, uh, and, and sort of the horse race and the candidates and stuff, which I guess um, I'm happy to ha uh, leave to you guys to weigh in about because I, I just. I get very tired of the horse race and we're not even really in it yet, but uh, it's so encouraging, I think, to see a major candidate forum for the Republican Party primary uh, be run by uh, people who actually understand what questions delineate the candidates for the Republican base. Uh, because until now, I don't think this has ever really happened. You know, the best we could do was sort of having one guy like Hugh Hewitt on a panel of mainstream journalists who are asking the questions in the debates. Um, and, and that has just been a real disservice to Republican voters because uh, it hasn't really dug into the differences between the candidates in the way that we would care about them. And then on the flip side, it's, it's uh, De uh, Delano's kind of not feeling well, I think, um, so he wasn't able to join us today uh, in, in Josh's place, and I'm glad we have Jeremy with us. Um, but he he was part of this commentary, which is why I bring it up uh, for for Blaze Media. And just he, Oren McIntyre, um, you know, Steve Dees, like uh, there were some great Matt Pat Peterson. Um, there there was just a totally different perspective on this team that was put together by Glenn Beck, I guess. So 
um, just talking about issues in the way that I think is actually reflects our, our reality. So just to give one example, they were talking about how the different candidates dealt with the, the shift of corporate power towards the cultural left, right? Praising some candidates and saying that others totally don't seem to understand this, uh, Asa Hutchinson, right? Um, totally don't seem to understand that this is actually the dynamic of the world that we live in. Um, and, and you can't just give, and the candidates weren't allowed to give, they were pressed on answers that were just basically boilerplate from 2012 saying that they believe in the free market. They were pressed on those issues. And then the commentary afterwards focused on how they addressed um, issues like that, that are, I think are, are, you know, the base is in every poll way out ahead of where most elected Republicans actually are on a lot of these issues. If you look at, for example, trust in big business, it's plummeted off, off at a, a cliff among Republicans. Now Republicans and Democrats have similarly low opinions of big business. That's a huge sea change, huge shift in the Republican base that until now was only reflected by a few players among their elected officials. Well, I think summits like this one and, and a new media um, you know, new media environment like this one is going to make sure that issues like that actually are at the center of how politicians have to run for office. If they want Republican votes, if they want votes from the, the Republican base, they're going to have to answer questions like this. And I think that that's overall a really, really good thing. And I'll, I'll, I'll turn it out over to the rest of you guys for thoughts. Yeah, well, I'd say that Tucker and the Blaze ascending and Fox News cratering the same week with its new primetime lineup is definitely uh, a very positive overall indication of a change in the zeitgeist, which, by the way, I, I don't want Fox to implode. I want Fox to do better and catch up with where uh, the Republican Party uh, and the conservative base, more importantly, is. Um, I mean, I think it's really important that we have that big network presence that they provide, but I think that their their kind of behavior vis-a-vis -vis Tucker showed that they they weren't really there. Um, I have to say, having said all that, uh, and Inez, I share your uh, sort of, um, I understand your skepticism on the horse race. I sort of look at all this early candidate stuff, and I'm just like, it's going to be Trump or DeSantis. And I know DeSantis has been struggling, and I just have a hard time, uh, you know, really getting too serious about any of these other guys. I mean, they could, if DeSantis... Um, continues to struggle i could see one of them passing him uh but i just i i just i feel like all the other candidates with the um with the possible uh exception of uh, our favorite uh, charismatic businessman in the race who is not named donald trump um uh i think they're just away from where the the kind of overall feeling of the party is right now and, and they're running as you said in as in a a 2012 political environment and not a 2024 one. When the dust sort of settled after the Blaze Summit on Friday, I my reaction was this should really have uh, both like the RNC, DNC, CNN, Fox News quaking in their boots a little bit because what Blaze showed is that you can put out a product that I would argue in substance is better. So for your average Republican voter who's genuinely looking to find the contrast between candidates and decide who is the best person to be the leader of the free world, um, that was a, a substantively excellent product. And the produ the production was fine. You know, it, it, it's, it, is it, you know, the CNN like spaceship production? No, but the production is fine. And people who were looking to hear that contrast uh, got a product that wasn't, you know, shoddy, 
people live streaming from their basements. Um, it was a good final product and it was in substance probably better than what a, a lot of corporate outlets, legacy outlets have been able to do because of those ideological constraints. And so it, it just showed that there's a possibility of bypassing the gatekeepers. And I agree with Jeremy, like I think a stronger Fox News is a better Fox News. I like the idea of competition between Fox and the Blaze and uh, the Daily Wire and the broadcast space. I think that's you know the ideal. Um, but when you can start bypassing the gatekeepers and when the RNC has to have, you know, Tucker asking questions of their preferred candidates, I'm thinking of like a Romney situation in 2012, uh, you know, that you sort of are, are able to graft onto 2023, like tech context. Uh, that is really something. And so I, I thought the contrast that Tucker was able to draw was super helpful. I don't think Tucker is the mainstream of the Republican Party. And I think he knows that. I think he's closer to the mainstream of the Republican Party than pretty much anyone else in media. I think there's some issues that he's a little bit further from or that even the Republican base is divided on. But I thought he did a great job. Um, and there was something so valuable about hearing uh, you know, sort of every man perspective put in front of these candidates who so often don't have to uh, confront them, uh, let alone in the major media space. So well done uh, from the blaze. I hope we see more exactly like this and uh, more like power being taken away from the gatekeepers who then have to earn it back. And uh, as they try to earn it back, that'll hopefully create a better product. Yeah, related to this, there's also been some reporting recently about how the Trump campaign has consciously sought out podcasters, big podcasters. And part of that is probably because who the demographics are and where you can make a marginal difference that might matter down the road. But part of it also is that there this is obviously a massively massive transition period for media. And I suspect that you're going to see the corporate media companies themselves potentially change in terms of their format or the host that they use in connection with open fora or debates like these. Um, you know, I think it's useful. It's a useful exercise for voters to see moderators who represent different strands of the conservative movement. And I agree that Tucker strikes a chord and resonates with a big chunk of the conservative electorate, but certainly not on every single issue. And I'm sure he would admit that. So it's a useful exercise for there to be an avatar for sort of all the different parts of the Republican base, uh, all of which, by the way, are probably still different from where the establishment is overall in their orientation. Um, and, you know, I think what this speaks to is the value of having non-DC insider types and obviously moderators who don't hate the guts of the actual audience doing the questioning when it comes to you know, determining who a nominee is going to be and then ultimately determining who ultimately the president is going to be. So, you know, there's a media angle to this, which is really interesting about this is a new media success story, which is a great thing. And I'm very happy for the folks at The Blaze where I started my career in conservative media. Um, you know, I thought that Tucker asked interesting, compelling questions that, again, represented voices that probably would not have any representation in most corporate media contexts. So that's really useful. Um, and then beyond that, you know, it's going to be interesting to see then what this looks like the rest of the cycle. Are we going to see a style and also a substance that's more like this going forward? So I'm encouraged by the success of it. And I think it's probably going to cause uh, evolution in the way that the primary process publicly is going to play out. And I think that's all to the good for conservative voters. 
And on that note, I will turn it over to Jeremy to completely shift gears and talk about a, you know, we talk about fake everything, fake study of the states. So take it away, Jeremy. Yeah, thanks. Thanks very much. And, uh, you know, I, I kind of picked up on this and it, it got a fair bit of traction among uh, conservatives on Twitter. But uh, CNBC has kind of regularly done an annual um, kind of list of best and worst states to live and work for the year. And it claims to be scientific. And I want to discuss the results, um, not just because they're sort of interesting in and of themselves, but because, as you just kind of touched on, it gets to the broader sense of this fakery this kind of fake social science, fake media that that conservatives have to endure. And it was such an egregious example of it. And yet it, you know, nobody internally at CNBC said, wait a minute. So essentially, you know, they have this 10 variable ranking where they look at it and and you know, surprise, surprise, at the end, um the 10 uh best states to live and work were all blue states, and the 10 worst states to live and work were all red states. Um, you know, and I sort of looked at that and I did, did a little thing on Twitter myself on it, sort of showing that, in fact, if you looked um, at net domestic migration from the most recent census data, these alleged worst states, which included places like Florida and Texas and uh, and also Tennessee, um, were basically uh, seven of the top 12 states for net domestic migration, four of the top five and that when you looked at the allegedly, you know, extremely appealing um, uh, blue states, in fact, it was uh, two of the bottom five states for net domestic migration, New Jersey uh, and uh, Massachusetts, I think, in there. Um, and, and really uh, no states that had significant positive domestic migration uh, except Vermont and uh, Maine, which were ranked one, two which happened to be the two whitest states in the United States and not exactly representative of anything, uh, much less the democratic uh, kind of base. But yet there seemed to be no self-awareness. And so when I kind of dug into this a little bit more and kind of said, well, what was the crazy methodology and why did this change so much? Why did it become so much more extreme? Because if you went back and even looked at the survey last year, um, you know, North Dakota was up there in the best states and Texas had been there for five years. Well, basically, they they changed the methodology so that it's it's like, uh, you know, if you're pro-choice, if you're pro-trans, you know, these were the sorts of things that were considered wonderful and inclusive. And if you you know if you have these quote unquote anti-discrimination, that was what moved you up um, in the rankings. Florida was hit. Florida was number ten in the worst states, um, and uh, it, it's talked about how the the DEI laws there and the the war against woke was was downgrading them, and Texas was ranked the worst. And, and there was, you know, there was sort of this cognitive dissonance where they said, I mean, they even acknowledged, well, gosh, hundreds of thousands of college-educated voters are um, are moving to Texas, but what they're not realizing is that it's it's not trans-friendly. I mean, this was literally the level of the dialogue uh, that is going on, and I, you know, I just I think it's it's very concerning because. Obviously, conservatives will make fun of it. We'll say, hey, uh, this is not really uh, representative of any particular real reality. Um, uh, but, but you know, I think the average person is not looking at CNBC and saying, hey, I'm reading The Nation or even that this is the failing New York Times that I'm looking at. They think, well, this is straight ahead business reporting. But in fact, what it is, is it's just uh, the Democratic Party's political preferences being engrafted upon 
a uh, you know an allegedly objective survey of business climates, and they you know they interviewed the governor of North Carolina, who was the one blue state that actually sort of showed up well in some more objective rankings, and you know he was happy to go take uh, credit for this. So this sort of thing is being taken seriously by normie world, but I just think it's 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 indicative of the just an overall collapse of any sort of credibility um, among even our most mainstream quote unquote. Uh, media and academic institutions, and so uh, you know, I, I just thought it was, it was, it was interesting because of that. So I'll I'll leave it to you guys to have a little more commentary. No, it, it is interesting, and this is why I always uh, I've probably talked about this here before. I'm at my office at the National Journalism Center right now, and one of the thing the the book that I assign to all the NJC students is Coming Apart, and I say uh, it's one of three books, but I say this is the best book about journalism that has absolutely nothing to do with journalism because you can actually learn about uh, just, a, I mean, you can, you can pretty much, if you read Coming Apart, diagnose accurately the biggest problem uh, in legacy media, which is an utter disconnect between the people who purport to cover the entire country and the rest of the country. They're really, really in touch uh, with, you know, coastal urban enclaves, although even then they're pretty out of touch as we learned during the summer of 2020, the abolished police, abolished the police movement. They're completely out of touch with like working class urban areas, black areas, minorities, um, who they, again, purport to speak for, um, but aren't in the laptop class. So once you start to see the, I guess, socioeconomic sorting, um, one of the things with Murray Superzips is it's, it's not often discussed in this context. It's actually, this is a change. Um, so all of the business incentives have changed in legacy media, especially with streaming and internet uh, and the blogosphere and social media and all of that. Um, but but also a big change is that people don't uh, live in areas where they're worshiping with or breaking bread with people from different socioeconomic backgrounds. Um, and that means they have less empathy. That does go both ways. Um, and we'll talk about that in the next segment. But uh, it, the, they'll have less empathy, less understanding of like, there's only so much you can learn from this on paper. You know, there's only so much you can learn from uh, reading Coming Apart or, you know, Alienated America or whatever. Um, but when you're actually in the same community with have a different level of accountability uh, or in the school board uh, with people across the social, social economic background, you understand them differently. And there's nobody in the media that has that. Uh, that's why I think media is the biggest problem in the country right now, because how can you possibly create content about the best states to live when you have a fundamentally biased, um, but biased to the extent you don't even know it's biased perspective on what the good life is on on what those metrics are, um, because yours are totally different than the rest of the country. Uh, it's, it's almost an impossible project. And first, they just need to be honest about it. So the first step is just saying we have a problem. Uh, we uh, need to be honest and realize that our version of the good life is uh, probably more resonant with the rest of us in Manhattan and, uh, you know, in, in Washington, D.C. than it is with people, you know, in suburban Raleigh, North Carolina, in uh, Milwaukee, wherever it is. Yeah, that, that's that's all true, and Emily, and related to where I was going to go with us, which is these these uh, kind of purporting to be objective scientific um, kind of indices, right? That there's something that rely heavily on trust in institutions and expertise, right? Um, and and so I think that they're probably much less effective now, but that's slow to take hold. So, I mean, these, these indices have always been BS, you know, um, the, the, the inputs determine the outputs, uh, 
it's like like happiness surveys, for example. These are like where they ask you know different countries how happy they are, and they come away with the fact that suicidally depressive Scandinavians are the happiest in the world, right? Um, you know, or, or think about the, the fascism index, the authoritarian index that was going around a couple of years ago, right, where you can scientifically determine that while the Democratic Party has remained completely unauthoritarian, Republicans have gotten way more authoritarian over the years. And there's like a little graph that just shows, I mean, you attach a graph or a list to things and people think that it's objective somehow. I think that's probably much less true today than it was um, even three years ago, and it'll probably be less true in three years than it is right now in terms of just seeing that graph and, and thinking that that makes it objective and scientific when in reality it's BS input, BS output, and it's it's highly dependent on what your priors are. Yeah, and I mean, pro progressives and even if, you know, the so-called mainstream sources, I think in some ways are not actually in their own minds progressive, but they have drank the Kool-Aid because these are the this is the culture that they have been inculcated in. You know, at the end of the day, they're about dominance and control and being able to point to empirical studies to justify uh, whatever it is that the goal is, you know, is always uh, is always useful. Um, but I, I will say, though, there is a benefit to the kind of BS studies, which is that they will help weed out for the good states in the union who you want coming into your state and who you don't want coming into your state. So if you're fooled by those ratings, that's probably a good indicator you're not going to end up in a red state and not going to ultimately corrupt that red state. So I, I will say that there is kind of an upside to the fakery. But I think the broader point holds, obviously. Um, there is no trust in institutions anymore. That's a bad thing, but it's also a good thing to the extent that the American people are awake to them. And, you know, the more that the institutions discredit themselves, uh, even though having a slew of discredited institutions is not a good thing in the short term, necessarily, long term it is because they'll either reform or they'll die and they'll be replaced by better ones. And that's a positive going forward. Um, so with that, I'll turn it over for, again, a completely different, though, related topic because it touches on culture and uh, flyover country derided by probably the folks at CNBC. Uh, we'll turn it over to Emily on Jason Aldean. Literally flyover country. Uh, the the man behind the song uh, flyover states himself, Jason Aldean, in this situ in this uh, particular example. So he has he's out with a song called "Try the Try That in a Small Town," and I think the song itself actually came out in May. He released a video for it that's admittedly pretty hardcore uh, in the last week, where he's ripping uh, stuff from the headlines, basically, where in urban areas uh, right here in Washington D.C. just a couple weeks ago a man who was an Afghan interpreter was gunned down for absolutely no reason. Basically, it was a botched carjacking when he went out for a night shift as a Lyft driver, just shot by some black teenagers who ran away and were caught on a ring camera. Uh, just senseless, senseless violence. So things like that are sort of ripped in the headline to the background of uh, the song, which is basically like, if you carjack, carjack a woman, an elderly woman on the street, you know, try that in a small town. You're spitting on a cop, try that on a small town, uh, in a small town. And the left was paying attention to this before conservatives were. I think conservatives were sort of like, hey, this is this song is kind of fun uh, because it resonates with me. And I agree, like, hey, you know, 
come and try that in a, in a small town. But uh, the left immediately pivoted to racism. Uh, as you can imagine, uh, people compared it to, it was like, I, I think Aldine responded by saying, like, I've been accused of writing a pro-lynching song. Um, it, it, the accusations against him have been intense. He's pretty Trump-friendly. He's a Trump supporter. I think he's been to Mar-a-Lago a number of times. Um, pretty openly conservative. His wife is uh, super, super openly conservative, I think has been uh, like even on Fox talking about all of this stuff and very outspoken. Um, and it's it's pretty it's pretty standard fare. Um, actually, there was a criticism of him from a an activist on the left. He said, this is for the what about Chicago crowd. Well, yeah, I mean, it, that tells you everything you need to know about their detract about the detractors in this case. It's like they think the what about Chicago crowd is unsophisticated, like racist rubes, um, when in fact, what about Chicago uh, remains a very legitimate point in the conversation. But because, you know, Jason Aldean, this song is not Hank Williams, like it's not hillbilly Shakespeare stuff. Uh, it's, it's very red meat It's very pop country. Um, but the point that he's making has a whole lot more validity than the point his critics are making, and it resonates with a, a broad swath of the country. So CMT, uh, at least as of our recording right now, yanked the video amid all of this controversy. So that's country music television, pretty powerful player in the country music industry. Um, they haven't said why so far. Again, as of this recording, as of this recording, uh, reporters have reached out to them. I haven't explained the decision yet. Uh, but again, this came amid a lot of controversy. So whenever you're pulling something down in the middle of controversy, there's probably, um, you know, a, a fair conclusion to be drawn. Um, but we we don't technically know. Uh, either way, he's gotten intense blowback uh, that, again, like this, the, the worst kind of stuff. And if you, uh, you know, are, are in the what about Chicago crowd, uh, this these arguments are familiar um, that, you know, you're a racist for saying, you know, it's. A shame. It is a disgrace what happens in America's cities and, and not just post 2020 and not just now post, you know, laboratories of progressive criminal justice reform. Uh, it's been that way for a long time as they've sort of heightened their uh, attempts at becoming laboratories of progressive criminal justice reform. We've seen the results of that experiment come into starker contrast. The biggest victims of it are minorities, um, are, are disenfranchised people themselves. Uh, members of the working class, the black and Hispanic working class who get hit so hard by this violence. Uh, there's just no question about it. So for Jason Aldean to come under a fire from this, you know, you'll it's a Rorschach test. If you're watching it and you're a member of the left, you're going to see all of these, you know, allegedly racist undertones. But if you're somebody who um, is a member of the the proud card carrying member of the what about Chicago crowd, you you won't see any of that. And you'll say this is common sense. He, he shows white people attacking police in the video um, as well. Now, I did do a monologue on this, and this is where I'll, I'll toss it to the group on counterpoints today. Uh, we're taping on Wednesday and wanted to make a point that I think is a little bit sadder. Um, but to me, it's sort of the, they're taking the wrong um, point. They're, they're arguing the wrong car counter argument against try that in a small town, because, you know, I grew up in a 7000 person town in Wisconsin that still has a whole lot of social capital. It's a great place to grow up. And if you try to uh, carjack somebody in the middle of uh, Delafield, Wisconsin is not going to go well for you. If you try to do it in the middle of uh, one of the towns that has been absolutely decimated by deindustrialization, 
uh, you know, uh, it, it actually might not, it might go unnoticed uh, and it depends on where you are, of course, but uh, all that is to say, you know, the, the idea, the sort of Mayberry um, that we all have in our heads of, of small town America isn't true everywhere. There are real pockets of rural America that um, social capital, the safety net is in tatters and people uh, actually really are falling through it, sadly. We see that with deaths of despair. There's a very clear pattern in rural America um, and in some urban areas, too, when it comes to deaths of despair, when it comes to uh, China and the cartels preying on Americans with fentanyl. You don't just see it in San Francisco. Uh, you, you see it in uh, rural Massachusetts. You see it in rural Wisconsin. It's it's everywhere. And there are really some places, uh, because of deindustrialization, because of, uh, as Mary Eversat has argued, the sexual revolution, uh, where you really, really don't have that safety net like you used to. And, you know, maybe you could try that in a small town and get away with it, unfortunately. Um, maybe they'd be armed. So that might be the big difference. <laughs> but, but other than that, I think the sad reality is that not every small town has the social fabric it used to. And on that note, I'll toss it open to the group. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned that, Emily, because I, I actually see that. I mean, I live in a state with, in Montana with, with virtually nothing but small towns. I mean, I live in in the equivalent of a metropolis, which has 50,000 people. We're the third biggest city in the state now almost. Uh, but um, yes, heterogeneous, the sort of reception you'll get. And that's the really the better criticism. In some small towns in Montana, um, those sorts of dysfunctions are present. And in some small towns, it's much more healthy. I think there were two other interesting things. Um, one of which you also touched on. One is uh, he was sort of hit uh, for, gosh, you should have known. Um, he 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 filmed this video in front of this courthouse where this infamous lynching take place. And I didn't know where it was at first, but I'm like, okay, I have a pretty autistic knowledge of American history. I'm going to click through, you know, if I actually know about it, then maybe I'll consider it as like, you know, something that uh, a country singer should have uh, maybe known about, but if not, and I can't even remember, it was some place, uh, some small county in Tennessee. Um, you know, I never heard of this. I'm sure that he was not aware of this when he was uh, filming. So it just, I mean, to me, it just showed the dishonesty of the critique. And then also, I think the most important thing that you mentioned um, is the fact that CMT, which theoretically has this conservative base, which should be run by conservatives, but of course, we know it's probably not. Um, uh, their first reaction was not to just kind of uh, ignore this or to kind of speak out in defense of this popular uh, country artist, but to, in fact, turn tail, to be weak. And, you know, just to me, it's, it's a um, it's a symbol for so much of what happens in conservative institutions nationally. I mean, here we are, CMT kind of running away from this sort of uh, kind of attack. It just shows uh, how we need a, an attitude adjustment, as Hank Williams Jr. Uh, once wrote about in a good song. Uh, so uh, I don't know how you do that, but uh, uh, we sure need to. Yeah, the uh, the courthouse thing smacks of, of uh, bad faith, as you say. Um, it reminds me of when the riots in 2020, um, when they were toppling statues, right, uh, in, in Washington, D.C. and elsewhere, uh, they came for Albert Pike. Uh, if you are not aware of who Albert Pike is, you're, you're not alone. Uh, he, he's a relatively minor figure, but he is the sole uh, statue in Washington, D.C. His was the sole statue in Washington, D.C. of a Confederate, it being obviously a Union town with a lot of union statues um, um amongst its its decor uh so th that's that's the sort of thing like do you think a single person who went to go to face that statue knew who albert pike was before they did that um th the answer is absolutely not uh 
And so it, it is this like impulse, I think, to be incredibly bad faith. And and yes, there there are some some horrific things in America's past that are conveniently trotted out. Um, but as a proud member of the What About Chicago crowd, um, you know, look, like this this isn't my favorite song just because, as Emily said, it's just very pop country. But um, the lyrics, there's nothing offensive in the lyrics. And, and it's fact, okay, Inez. We know you're a cultural elite. We know you're a coastal elite. <laughs> yeah, Manhattanite. No, um. No, Queen I, of the I, laptop I, class. I think the heyday of pop country was in the 2010s. There are a lot of songs like this. So it does show how how far we've come in a certain sense in terms of the cultural revolution, because this type of song was not at all uncommon in the 2010s and then back through the 2000s in the pop country arena. This level of sort of lyrics, this red meat, half political lyrics uh, for, for what is legitimately sort of the culturally forgotten half of the country um, does perform a real pump up uh, aspect and the fact that CMT is treating this as though it's some kind of shocking thing is is um, just shows again how institutionally uh, the, the left has been able to insert, insert itself even though even in institutions where the obvious customer base and here um, I think the NFL comes to mind as uh, another one the obvious customer base is either apolitical or right shifted the institutions themselves like ESPN and so on still tend to be extremely left shifted in terms of politics and, and have no, um, no fear about culturally insulting uh, their, their customers that keep them, keep them fed and salaried. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I echo the thoughts about CMT and this just illustrates that corporations continue generally to be feckless and it's in no small part because you know, the left essentially runs a, a protection racket or an extortion racket, and they fear the pressure, the condemnation, and then potentially the political and legal action of the left. And they have no such fear about their actual customer base uh, being furious, although maybe that's going to change over time as we see more Bud Light case studies to come. Um, but I will say, you know, the upside is maybe there will be a Barbara Streisand effect to this. I don't know if Jason Aldean would... Uh, take offense to the comparison to Barbara Streisand, but um, it's no offense intended there. Um, and, you know, beyond that, I think the other aspect of this that maybe we haven't touched on is the fact that there is a another worldview that resonates with 50% plus of the country in popular culture. The left loads that they can't tolerate that. And they certainly can't tolerate, you know, something being produced, a product that's being produced from the cultural right that might actually appeal to people. So uh, there has to be controversy ginned up about it and it has to be attacked because it poses a threat to the extent there are cultural breakthroughs. Um, so, you know, from that perspective, I think those things are all to the good, but the, the backlash itself is telling and the, the corporate cowardice also appears to be telling as well. Um, so with that, let's open it up to parting shots. Yeah, I mean, I think just from from my perspective, uh, obviously a heterogeneous set of subjects, but um, uh, you know, I think kind of a, a common theme running through them is again the left's institutional capture, uh, their ability to create false reality through that institutional capture, and the right's fecklessness at uh, fighting back against that. And uh, you know, I hope that dialogues like this are are sort of part of. Uh, kind of growing a greater awareness of, of folks on the grassroots right and also among uh, those of us who are in the more talking head space that uh, this is not a kind of sustainable way 
to run a serious political movement and that we need to change. And I think the good news is that there are folks, uh, you know, not just like on this podcast, but but elsewhere who are ready to kind of have those fights and, and get their hands dirty. And, and that's encouraging. Yeah, my my uh, final thoughts going to be to draw attention um, to something that I think flows very much from what Emily was saying about the small town and and um, how much how many downstream effects from both the sexual revolution um, and from uh, deindustrialization and economic trends and so on uh, have have really hit a lot of the social cohesion um, and that that trendy phrase social capital of of a lot of American towns. Um, there's this uh, bill introduced uh, today by Chris Murphy, um, Senator Chris Murphy, right? It's it's called the National Strategy for Social Connection Act, which creates a federal office to combat the growing epidemic of American loneliness, develops anti-loneliness strategies, and fosters best practices to promote social connection. Um, so, you know, obviously this, this is, you know, this rings a lot of Orwellian bells, like the government is going to make you have friends um, or be your friend, right? Uh, but but I do think it points to this this uh, sort of inability of the left to really deal with the problem that their philosophy has created. Um, even more um, centrist liberalism really has uh, eked away and chipped away at all of the, um, the, the strong identity that binds people, whether that's the nation, whether that's the family, whether that's that's religious ties, um, it really has, uh, you know, all the, all the, all the coming apart uh, things that Charles Murray indicates in that book. Um, th those things uh, have real impact, and we are lonelier than ever. This is a, a massive problem, especially Emily, I think, um, and to some extent me. We talk about this a lot on this podcast and elsewhere. I think it is one of the biggest problems confronting us, but it is confronting us very much downstream from the liberalism that Chris Murphy supports. Um, and, and then a final note, of course, it's particularly ridiculous to, to hear this from uh, people who supported very, very long, years-long lockdowns and prevented people um, from actually interacting with each other or going to church or doing a lot of the activities uh, that, that do promote social cohesion and, and do promote a lack of loneliness. Um, so it, it's kind of like the the, the two-parter thing, the one the one punch of liberalism is is the the mystery of life passage from from uh, Anthony Kennedy uh, in, in Casey and in, in, in the Casey case, and then the the backup punch, you know, the, the sort of second the, the shooter, uh, sorry, the the shot and chaser, the chaser of this is okay. Now we're going to have a bureau of loneliness, right? Like we're going to best we can do is open a federal department. You know, we, we've we've completely blown up the natural family. Um, we have promoted an economic trend that makes it difficult for families to stay together and, and live together. Um, we have generally promoted a view of the self, a therapeutic view of the self that views all boundaries and connections as inherently oppressive. But at the end of it, at least there'll be a friendly government bureau uh, that is going to help you with your loneliness that, uh, that that a lot of our societal decisions have created. So I thought it was worth pointing that out. No, yeah, I've had two. Oh, go ahead, Ben. Uh, I was just going to say, you know, the feds uh, kind of create the loanway population, then they medicate them, they cleave them from their families, they take care of their health care, they indoctrinate them, and then they make you die at an age determined by a government bureau. That's the happy future we have coming. Not was my parting shot. I'll turn I was going to say, was that your final shot? Totally different. <laughs> uh, well, I was just going to say, I've actually had two like extended podcasts with Chris Rufo today. Again, we're taping on Wednesday and his new book is out. It's a great book. Um, but one was with 
uh, on counterpoints with Ryan Grimm. Um, and then the other was Federalist Radio Hour. And both conversations came to such an interesting place that gets to what we're talking about, which is we ended up uh, weirdly like it's not weird when you think about it. It's just not where people expect conversations about critical race theory to go, but uh, to, like on the, the welfare state. And the reason you go from point A to point B in those situations is because you then land on, well, what is the sort of conservative alternative to this mentality, to this worldview, um, and and what not even just a conservative alternative, what is society's alternative to this worldview? And a lot of times, I mean, I think people agree, you know, even J.K. Rowling kind of agrees on what the alternative is to radical trans propaganda, and she's a, a pretty far left progressive. Um, but what is the, the kind of alternative on the economic level, right? So like on the, uh, the, the cultural stances, the social stances, we get it. Um, and I think there's there's public consensus on for now, at least I think it's being eroded on a daily basis. Um, but on the fact that, like, yes, we want the police. Yes, uh, we think marriage is uh, the right way to raise children. Yes, there are, you know, whatever it is, like we we're with it. Um, but then what can conservatives do? to be sure people have enough money to uh, get married and buy houses and, and have stable family lives where they're not worried about $700,000 hospital bill because they got cancer or something insane. Like, these numbers really are truly insane, even though we don't talk about health care a lot on the right anymore. Um, and Chris, uh, who spent a lot of time um, in like housing projects, doing documentary films. I think it was in Memphis that he did a full documentary on on uh, poverty there. He, he's talked about, you know, you see it up close. You know, the answer is not a loneliness bureau. Is not a it, like it, you know that you know the answer. Uh, you you see what the Great Society has done to these communities, and all that is to say, I think conservatives, while we are having these really useful, important um, conversations about critical race theory and the Marxism that underpins uh, even the smallest and stupidest things we see, like Dylan Mulvaney. Uh, selling Bud Light, uh, even these like silly, silly, silly little things. It, it just, there needs to be an answer. Um, and it's coming along slowly and probably too slowly when we look at what Republicans are talking about in 2020. Uh, I'm sorry, 2024. My gosh, what a time warp we're in. Um, so it's coming around along, but it's coming along slowly. Like you've got people like American Compass and, and Orrin Castle where they're plugging away at it. Um, and Heritage has a great new policy book, but uh, it hasn't quite trickled into 2024 yet. And uh, I think that's it's that might be too late uh, to really come up with a coherent answer. So anyway, that's my final thought. Yeah, and I think in part, it's almost by nature, because we sort of believe in constraints on power. We don't necessarily think in terms of, okay, what is the affirmative agenda that is inspiring and consistent with our values and principles, but actually responds to uh, the needs of real people in the flesh. Um, on a totally separate matter, I just wanted to comment briefly on the whole notion of Schedule F, which is, you know, sort of this policy about reigning in the administrative state and reasserting presidential control over executive branch agencies. I just find it hilarious and so revealing that uh, you're attacked as a fascist for saying that a president should have authority over the agencies uh, to which she's delegated power. It, it, it's kind of hilarious. Um, you know, leaving aside, you know, the, the constitutionality of the administrative state itself, and I think the likes of Philip Hamburger have made very good arguments 
uh, about its unconstitutionality, leaving aside all the practical negative consequences of a massive fourth branch of government. But it is so revealing that the very notion that someone would deign to have ideas different from a bureaucracy that's 99% controlled by progressives or rhino saboteurs, and that they might actually assert some authority over it, that that poses an existential threat to democracy, uh, unelected and unaccountable bureaucrats actually having to answer to the public by way of their representative in the form of the president is kind of a hilarious and very revealing uh, window into the eyes of our elites. Um, separate but related, uh, a sad thought to end on. It strikes me that at this point, anyone who is a serious national figure, um, one of the characteristics that you'll probably see is that or, or one way by which to measure how serious they might be in terms of grappling with the problems we face and knowing what time it is, is do you expect that that figure could credibly end up indicted? And I actually think that that is essentially where we are. That further is an illustration of how much the institutions have eviscerated themselves. And I guess also how apoplectic, crazed, and hysterical our ruling elites are in fearing, actually, that the public might reimpose its own will over uh, our elites, our betters. So it's a, a scary and sad thought, but I think, uh, frankly, a true one, will, would this figure likely be indicted? That is probably a standard that you have to look to for anyone who might be the real deal in terms of a national figure. And it's an incredibly sad state of affairs. And I say it's sort of tongue in cheek, but also kind of seriously as well. Um, on that note, so for Emily, Inez, and Jeremy, I'm Ben Weingarten. This is Not Con Squad, and we'll see you next week.